Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I think Robert shook me out of my complacency probably. He, seemed, he helped me articulate something I hadn't really understood when he asked me two questions. His first question was, uh, when God looks down from heaven and looks at your life, does he separate your activities into the sacred and the secular? And I was thinking, no, that's ridiculous really when you think about it. And then Robert said to me, so why do you? <laughs> um, and that really pinned me to a wall and made me think, wow, that's such an arbitrary distinction, yet it's something that we tend to do. So um, that helped me realise why I was having trouble struggling to connect what happened on Sunday with what happened Monday to Saturday. Um, and that really helped me start to think about everything as being something that is sacred. So I said, Monday to Saturday, now you've had a whole lot of interesting jobs and we've got your CV there on the bulletin, but uh, as a TV reporter and other things, so your particular focus in this space, I guess, has been thinking about work mm -hmm. and everyday life, mm -hmm. and you've just released a book, Workship. Yep. Uh, give us a bit of a plug for your <laughs> Always happy to give it a plug. Um, yeah, well, I guess merging the sacred and the secular, I decided to make up a new word. Uh, so actually putting work and worship together uh, was my way of sort of merging those two things. And in the book, what I do is I start off with a basic theology of work, trying to understand what the Bible has to say about work. And then I uh, examine some spiritual disciplines for work, because I, I believe that the workplace can be a place where we can be formed by God, uh, rather than seeing it as just something that feels alien to our faith. It can actually be somewhere that strengthens our faith. And finally, I have a few chapters on some practical wisdom for work. So I have a chapter on vocation, a chapter on identity, a chapter on working relationships, because I think they're so significant, um, and also a chapter on what I call kingdom business. How, if you do have responsibility for an organisation, how you can actually shape it. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's workshop. And you've been teaching the same course, so similar to the book, at yep. uh, Mary Andrews College, a part of ADM Ministry, so we're glad you've made time tonight to come and preach to us. Over to you. Delighted, thank you. Uh, <coughs> let me just commit this time to prayer. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather here. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us to be leaders in whatever we do, that we have the opportunity to influence others, whether we have an official title of leader or not. And I pray as we chew over this material together, we'll grasp a little more how amazing Jesus' example of leadership is and that it, that it might challenge us to think about how we influence others in everything we do. Amen. Okay, I want to start by telling you a story of two Christian leaders. So the first one is a woman who was heading up a startup digital technology company. And she uh, was going really well. Um, she was really enjoying the process. She had a great team. Everything was going great during the boom times. But suddenly the global financial crisis happened and everything in the bottom fell out of the market and it began to look unlikely uh, that the marketplace was going to accept the product that they were striving to make. Uh, the investors started to get a bit shaky and she was very nervous about it, but she continued to encourage her team, she kept them well informed. Um, she, the investors eventually backed out and she had to search and find a new investor. She found this investor and again, she told the team what was happening and they kept working hard. And then finally, 
that investor rang her one night with the phone call she didn't want to get and he said he was pulling out. She realised that uh, that meant they didn't have enough money to keep going for very long. So she emailed all her employees, said, come to work tomorrow. Um, it's going to be our last day together. And that night she had an angry conversation with God. I don't know if you've ever had those sort of conversations with God when something that you thought was going to happen a certain way doesn't happen and you start saying, God, what are you doing? You know, I've got this all worked out. <laughs> You're not coming to the party here. And she was worried about all the good work that she felt that they'd been doing and all the prayers that she prayed. And she wondered what God was doing when she had felt that he had really been blessing the work. And suddenly here it was, it was all going to go to ruin. The next day she went into work. She got everyone together and she told them the news about what had happened. And she said to them, look, this is what is going to happen next. She'd have to sell off the assets. Uh, she'd sell off their intellectual property. But she told them she was still dedicated to trying to get the product they had all worked so hard for to the market. And then she thanked them for all their work. She celebrated their achievements. And she sat down. And she received a standing ovation. <laughs> and it brought her to tears. In fact, uh, someone there afterwards said to her, do you realise how crazy it is that you got a standing ovation on the day that you told everyone they were going to lose their job? That's just crazy. And suddenly she began to realise that the work that they'd done had not been in vain, that the relationships they'd formed were still really valued, and the creative culture that she'd tried to create had actually still been fruitful. Okay, second story. Another Christian leader, this time in a large bank in Australia. Uh, she, the bank was going through a restructure. I don't know if anyone else here has been restructured. I've been restructured several times during my career. <laughs> it's not a very fun thing. Uh, she and her team looked at the new plan for their um, business, the bank, and realised that their team didn't have a place on it. So they were in limbo for quite a long time. One day she called them all together and she said, I have bad news and I have good news. She explained that the bad news was that indeed... Uh, there wasn't a place for their team in the new structure that the work still needed to be done, uh, that the team would probably be split up into different areas. And she also said that, um, that some of them, unfortunately, would have to be made redundant. And then she told them the good news. The good news was that the company had offered her a new role and that she'd be able to move into that new role very shortly, but they would have to continue without a leader for a period of time. When she sat down, there was stunned silence. <laughs> Two leaders, significant influence, very similar situation, very different modes of operating, very different outcomes. I wonder if that challenges our thoughts about what Jesus-shaped leadership looks like. You see, I think leadership is actually an intimate relationship, even when it happens in business. It's intimate because it involves followership. <laughs> you can't be a leader without followers. And followers will follow when they believe in the credibility of the leader and the competency of the leader, and when they think that the leader actually cares for them. When that dynamic is going really well, 
it's amazing. I wonder if you've ever been part of a team where you've had a good leader and it's just been a really exciting time and it's very productive, it's very effective working. It's exciting to be part of that. But when it goes badly, <laughs> there is pain, there is disappointment, there is poor work and often there's conflict as well. I believe as Christians we actually have some amazing resources to offer in the leadership vacuum that I often see in the world. You see, we follow one of the greatest leaders of all time. Jesus was a superlative recruiter, educator, communicator, motivator, visionary, strategist and influencer. And he gave us what I think is one of the most glorious examples of leadership or tools for leadership we can imagine, this concept of servant leadership, which was very countercultural to his day and I think is still reasonably countercultural to some of the leadership we see around us. We hear positive stories of leadership, but I think that frequently the proving ground of leadership is when things do go bad, when there are setbacks, when there are difficulties, like those two stories I told earlier. And now Jesus is about to face testing times. Will his leadership stand? What can we learn from the passage that we have today? And as I prayed, I want you to remember that actually we're all leaders. Um, that sounds a little bit kitschy, doesn't it? <laughs> but I think if you think of leadership as influence, there are people that we can influence around us as friends, uh, in the community, as parents, in our neighbourhood and often in our workplaces. And sometimes I see leadership happening not from the people who have the roles as leaders, but from the people on the team. So this message is for all of us. So Mark 11, uh, in the NIV, it has a heading, and the heading says, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. But it doesn't sound very kingly, does it, what he does? You see, 1,000 years earlier, Absalom had been planning a coup against his father, King David. And to appear like a king, what he had done, and you can read about it in 2 Samuel 15, was that he rode on a chariot and he had 50 men running in front of him. How does Jesus come as king? He comes riding on a donkey. So why is he received as a king? I think he's received as a king because... He has given people glimpses of his kingdom. And people are hungry for that kingdom. And if we want to see what that kingdom looks like, all we have to do is turn a chapter earlier in Mark 10. So in Mark 10, <clears throat> I believe we see six signs of the kingdom that King Jesus represents. If you've got a Bible, feel free to flick to it. If not, I'm happy just to describe those different uh, stories to you. So first of all, we see at the beginning of Mark 10 in verses 1 to 12, this imagery of flourishing relationships. Jesus is talking about marriage, but he's actually talking about covenant relationships, all relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. These relationships are marked by love, they're marked by self-sacrifice, and they're marked by commitment. So a sign of the kingdom is flourishing relationships. Another sign of the kingdom is welcoming. We see in the next little passage, the next little vignette in Mark 10, 
that Jesus welcomes the children to come to him. Now, children at that time weren't highly considered, uh, not like our days when we love children and we think a lot about them and care for them. Babies in those days could be casually left on rubbish tips to die. Children were not treated equally as human beings. But Jesus welcomes them. He gathers them to himself. Just the way that he has welcomed others. He has welcomed people from other cultures. He has welcomed the maimed and the disabled. He has welcomed those on the margins. He has welcomed women. So the kingdom is marked by flourishing relationships. It's marked by hospitality and welcome. It's also marked by a challenge to the idols. In Mark 10, 17 to 31, we meet the rich young ruler. I wonder if you're a member, uh, familiar with that story. The rich young ruler was too attached to his wealth and to his status. And when Jesus challenged him, he wasn't ready to give it up. And he walked away sad. You see, in the kingdom, we're valued beyond what we own or what we've done or who we've been born to. Those who trust in power or success, the Australian cricket team comes to mind at this point, <laughs> they will walk away sad. There's a challenge to surrender yourself to Jesus. So flourishing relationships, hospitality, challenging idols. The next mark of the kingdom is telos. That's a, uh, a Greek word for purposeful becoming versus an ideal. You see, in Mark 10, what happens next is that Jesus predicts he's going to be arrested. He tells them very clearly he's going to be arrested, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be spat at, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be killed and then he's going to be raised from the dead. And the response is astonishment from the disciples. They just can't really believe it. And fear from his other followers. See, this is not the ideal for the disciples. As you can imagine, they've followed him around. They're hoping for some sort of revolution. But what Jesus is talking about just doesn't match up with their ideal. But it's actually the kingdom coming into being. The new reality is going to break into their world. So, flourishing relationships, hospitality, challenging idols, purposeful becoming, and no favoritism. James and John then ask Jesus whether they can be his special friends, as it were. They're already part of his inner circle, but they want to sit at the right and the left-hand side of Jesus when he becomes the leader, the king. Jesus says no. He says there's no special seats at banquets if you follow Jesus. In fact, he says if you follow me, you have to expect suffering. You have to be prepared to be chained to gates, to be taken away by the police when you sit in an office and pray. So flourishing relationships, hospitality, challenging idols, purposeful becoming, no favoritism, and finally revelation. The very last picture we have in Mark 10 is the story of blind Bartimaeus having the miracle of being made able to see. And yes, that miracle proves that Jesus was the Son of God. But more than that, I think there's something very symbolic that is happening there. Eyes are being opened. People are beginning to be challenged to look and see what is really happening, what is really going on. At this stage, only Jesus can fully imagine what that kingdom is going to look like but he invites the others to actually res respond to it. 
This is good news. The people don't fully understand it, but they know enough and they see enough to realize that this is good news. So they come out and they're hundreds and they're thousands to line the streets of Jerusalem to welcome King Jesus. And how does he come? He comes riding on a donkey. Now, I want to make it clear that donkeys at this time weren't revered. It's not like donkeys have suddenly gone down in, <laughs> in our estimation of them since then. They weren't revered at all in that time. They were just working animals. If you wanted to make an entrance, you would ride on a horse. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. But of course, as we had from uh, our reading a little earlier, we realized that he's actually fulfilling a prophecy. He's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And even little detail about being riding on a colt that hadn't been ridden before, we read in Mark that that's exactly what Jesus does. This reference is not lost on the crowd or maybe part of the ancient story has resonated with them because they instinctively respond with phrases from Psalm 118. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So what do we see about Jesus' leadership here? We see that he has two postures I want to bring out. The first one is humility. Now, in the time when Jesus was born, in Greco-Roman times, humility wasn't something that was really sort of held up. In fact, it was the opposite. You were actually admired if you boasted about yourself and if you flattered other people. It was actually more important to receive honor than to give honor. Jesus taught humility. He said, the greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But more than this, Jesus exemplified humility. He was reluctant to even let others boast about, about him. Do you remember quite a few times when he healed people, he told them not to tell anyone else who he was or what was happening. He rode in on a donkey. And finally, the greatest act of humility, perhaps, he allowed himself to be killed, to die a humiliating death on a cross. We had the Philippians 2 reading, which celebrates this humility of Jesus. The Jesus who left heaven and his rightful place as God to become human for our sakes, who was obedient even to death on a cross. Paul and James and Peter all wrote to the early church, telling people, Christians, to be humble. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. The second posture is servanthood. While humility is inward looking, it's a virtue that we try and cultivate, it's internalized. Servanthood, serving others, is actually outward focused. Jesus taught and modeled this again. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he did amazing acts of service. The most famous probably being washing the disciples' feet. When he told them, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Uh, during the week, 
I watched the Common Grace Lenten video. Did anyone else see that one with Jared McKenna, I think it was, interviewing Uncle Seelan? Uh, if you can catch up with it, I recommend it. Uncle Seelan is a great Indigenous leader and he just came across as the most <laughs> humble serving leader just in that short video clip. It's just a couple of minutes long. But there was one moment that um, especially touched me where he's talking about the moment when he just surrenders himself to God. He was wrestling with God um, about what God wanted him to do and finally said, okay, God, I will do what you want to do. And he felt that God was telling him clearly that he was to be a leader of his people, indigenous people. And then he describes this moment and he begins to tear up and he describes what it felt like because at that moment he felt this warm glow. He, he described it as if you're sort of standing close but not too close to the campfire and you feel that warmth. And then shortly after that, he was ordained and he gets sent to a white parish. <laughs> and he bursts out in laughter at that point in the video because, I mean, how ridiculous is that? He surrendered to God. He's going to be a leader of the indigenous nations and God sends him to a white parish. And yet I'm sure that it was part of God's plan and I'm sure that that was part of the way that God was moulding him as a leader in humility and service. <laughs> and that's the sort of characteristics that come across just as he was speaking on the video. It is these postures of humility and service that I think that we are supposed to carry out as we try and influence people for the kingdom. And the kingdom that we're telling them about, the good news, is about shalom, which is not simply peace. It's about making everything's, everything right again wherever we are. And so we can take those clues that Jesus showed us, the sort of kingdom that he was building, and we can try and see how we can do it. So I wonder, as you go out this week, think about how you can use your influence to bring about flourishing relationships, how you can bring hospitality and welcome to others, how you can challenge idols. Maybe you need to have some idols challenged in yourself first, how you can challenge other people's idols. How, can, how you can move towards the biblically revealed new earth rather than simply some ideal you have about what you want God to do. How you can prefer suffering rather than showing favoritism to others. How you can be truthful in what you do. How you can actually start revealing the kingdom to others. How you can show people, open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. May God help us to be kingdom influencers through our very ordinary, everyday lives. I wonder if you'd pray with me now. Humble Lord, thank you that we have the example of Jesus in leading that can challenge our leading also. Help us to lead like Jesus. Grow in us the virtue of humility and Help us to humble ourselves and grant us also the attitude of service. Show us creative ways this week that we might go out and we might serve others. I pray, Lord, that you would just awaken our eyes so that we can see how we can influence others for your sake and also for their sake. I pray that you would help us also to know how we can be excellent followers. Help us to glorify you rather than ourselves.
in our leading. Amen.